Welcome to the Zenov podcast series on hyper-intelligent automation or HIA. HIA is a technology born from the confluence of AI and RPA, evolving from a conventional automation tool to a strategic enterprise game changer. In this series, we bring to you our conversations with leading automation gurus and industry mavericks on how they are defining new possibilities and business outcomes through automation. Hello, and welcome to an exciting episode of the Zenov podcast, Hyper-Intelligent Automation Series, the most sought-after destination to listen to the who's who of the global automation industry. I am Praveen Badada, Managing Partner at Zenov, and I will be your host today. Over the last 18 months, the automation space has been heating up with multiple prominent fundraisers, mergers, and acquisitions, which are really dotting the landscape. In fact, M&A, has emerged as a leading avenue for companies to strengthen their capabilities across the hyper-intelligent automation spectrum. To discuss the philosophy behind companies taking the m and route and where the automation space is headed over the next few years, we have with us Chris Huff, Chief Strategy Officer at Cofax. So without further ado, let me welcome Chris to today's episode. Hello, Chris, and welcome to the show today. Hey, Praveen, good to be back with you. Looking forward to the conversation. I think uh, we have known each other for uh, probably more than two and a half years now. Um, I have a good handle on uh, your role and your company, but I think it'll be a great start. Uh, you know, if you can uh, maybe introduce yourself and Cofax uh, to our listeners today, and then then we'll go from there. Sure thing, um, Christoph, Chief Strategy Officer at Cofax. My responsibilities, it seems as though Praveen, every time we get together, they they, they change. So it's. Uh, it's a respectable question to ask me what I'm doing. But right now I'm responsible for our global strategy, which is really just to create value for our customers, um, our employees and shareholders while driving internal cross-functional alignment, meaning I help us drive the operational efficiencies needed across different functions so that way we can deliver effectively to the market. Prior to Cofax, I spent about five years leading the Deloitte public sector cognitive automation practice. Before that, uh, was a founder of a, of a B2C company. And then I also spent 20 years in the, in the U.S. Marine Corps as an officer. Awesome. So let's just get started. Uh, it'd be great to hear your view. I know Cofax uh, is itself in the journey to transition towards SaaS. What is your view on the SaaS opportunity as a business model? And uh, how is it actually reshaping companies like Cofax? What does it feel like to be a SaaS company uh, of the future? Yeah, this is this is really interesting, especially from a company like Cofax that's been around since 1985. So we were not born SaaS. Companies that were you know born in the in the last 10 years in the software industry typically are SaaS oriented companies. They were born SaaS. So all the muscles they've developed in their business has been completely oriented on delivering this SaaS software via cloud delivery to their customers. That's not the case for a lot of the, the companies now, surprisingly, that are still leaders in, say, intelligent automation type Zenobe zones, other type analyst um, quadrants, peak matrix, waves. But what this is requiring, to your point, Praveen, is that these legacy type companies that have been around for some time reinvent themselves, understanding that cloud is the future, SaaS is the future, Creating a B2B experience that feels like B2C, it's sort of just that easy to get started, but that requires an operating model transformation. And so if 
you know, my view on this is that, you know, SaaS is interesting because you can either be born SaaS, which is typically, again, companies founded in the last 10 years, but then you have companies like Kofax that have been around for a while, but we have a proven track record of delivering enterprise grade, scalable software with very large companies. And so they want us to evolve, but we now need to deliver our software in this new frictionless manner. And that's what SaaS really enables. And that provides sort of the customer access, you know, to the software via a simple URL instead of buying the software, download or implementing the software, and then trying to push it throughout the organization. I think what this calls into question then is, are these companies able to make this transition? And I think that's where you're really going to start to separate um, those enterprise companies, software companies that are going to be part of the future and those that are going to sort of degrade over time and probably find themselves on the outside. And so SaaS has really forced companies like Kofax to build cloud muscles and DevOps, design a recurring revenue model where sales reps, you know, must sell value and outcomes of the software and not the software product features themselves. And then CFOs need to budget differently. They need to forecast differently. They need to recognize revenue by a whole new set of rules. And this requires a culture reboot. And this is what I find interesting and what I love being a part of at Kofax is this culture reboot. I know you started talking about your thesis uh, from an M&A standpoint at Kofax. I think it'll be great to, uh, you know, for our audience to get some background in terms of when did you actually start started thinking about this and how did you come to this um, you know, decision on whether to build a SaaS platform or to acquire it or, or look at build as a core strategy and look at bolt-ons as an augmented strategy. Give us a little bit of a backdrop in terms of where did this thinking actually start and how far along are you in that journey uh, as of today? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, and I and I and I love the fact that we're going there because I think this is a this can be informative and educational for for so many people, and I'm still learning as as we move through this. But to put a bow on your earlier point, Praveen, because I think this is a this is really insightful, is that a lot of the valuations now are no longer predicated on profitability, but they're predicated on forecasted growth, which means the enterprise value now, and is is being determined via a multiple of of revenue as opposed to a multiple of EBITDA, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, traditionally viewed as how profitable is your company? Are you, do you, are you seeking profitable growth or is it growth at all costs? And I think early on, you do have to sort of establish, you know, this hyper growth in order to be able to get to scale. And when you're doing that, investments need to be made, but at a certain level, profitability or a clear <clears throat> line of sight to profitability actually matters. And I think you're seeing that in some of the reset that you're seeing in, in, in the large software companies, um, one in our space that went public, what, maybe six months ago, UiPath, I think their enterprise valuation is sort of being reset now based on understanding the clear line of sight to profitability and that hyper growth isn't exactly what's in the cards for them. And so how do they grow profitably at a very, very respectable you know, clip? But, but the enterprise value reset, I think there is some rationalization as we go forward because you cannot, it's just simply not sustainable in terms of the stretched valuations. But our, our M&A thesis has really been to create enterprise value at the end of the day, create enterprise value because with the enterprise value, obviously shareholders are happy. It allows us to invest in the business 
invest in the, the customer experience, but also the employee experience. So at the end of the day, we believe that enterprise value does drive a lot of the other things that need to happen to make a business viable moving forward. But at the end of the day, the success of an acquisition for us anyways, is really determined through you know, the price you pay for the asset and what you can inevitably sell that asset for, whether it's a tuck-in that helps with the overall enterprise value or it's something that you're looking to acquire, run as a separate business and inevitably sell off obviously at a higher premium, but it's really that simple. And as you know, Kofax is privately owned by, by Tomo Bravo, so private equity. Uh, Tomo Bravo, who has quite an impressive portfolio of enterprise software companies, because that's all they do. And they have an even more impressive track record of creating enormous value in relatively short periods of time. So they've been tremendous to work with. But if you think about the M&A thesis, even prior to Tomo Bravo, which we've done several add-on acquisitions in the about four years that Tomo Bravo has owned Kofax, but Kofax made a complementary sort of automation acquisition strategy in adjacent spaces. And what that allowed me to do when I joined in 2018 was simply say, why don't we platform these complementary technologies? Because we were running them as basically independent um, siloed products in the marketplace. And, and so this is what the tech market does over time anyway, right? It converges technologies to lower the total cost of ownership while improving the customer experience. And so that's pretty much been our, our, our thesis. But I would say when it comes to the valuations of these acquisitions, is that most of the acquisitions have been made at five to seven X EBITDA. Again, we look for companies that, that have scalable potential that are very complementary to obviously our install base or allow us to go into new markets, but we do not overpay. I think we are very disciplined when it comes to what we will pay and the way we value and justify our offering price is through a multiple of EBITDA and it's typically in the five to seven X range. So these are companies that obviously are not firing on all cylinders, but if we feed them sort of the Kofax mothership, um, all of the resources that we have and, and the intellectual property that we've built up over years, then you can easily get to an EBITDA of 12X, which is 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 not overpaying. And so you can see sort of the, the financial arbitrage that can be made through a good financial and, and M&A strategy. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, changing gears here a little bit, right? Um, you have been very acquisitive, like you said, over the last several years, and specifically in the last couple of years, you've made uh, many acquisitions to power your platform uh, story, right? So I think it'd be great if you can talk about the entire uh, deal life cycle from a buyer standpoint, from a Kofax standpoint, right? Where does it start? How much time does it take from one step to another? How many steps really are there in, in the entire life cycle? I think it'll be great for our audience to learn from that perspective. Yeah, and, and it is quite the process. And, and Carl Doyle, who runs um, as, as a SVP, really runs our M&A on, on a daily basis, really has a radar um, based on, is it gonna be a consolidation play that we're going after? Is it gonna be a technology play, so a, a tuck-in? or is it gonna be a growth play? So the way he stratifies this is through these three big buckets, but there is very much, um, it's almost like you're, you're, you're doing any alliance type relationship um, as, as a, you know, a software vendor where you want to understand the value proposition before you sort of you know, have initial engagement. And so that's what we do with, with our M&A targets. Um, but what, what I'll say is different is at a point where you have an initial conversation 
and you realize that there's something to explore here, that's where you have a conversation about exclusivity. So can we have a period of exclusivity where it's just the two of us talking? Maybe you're not out shopping around. And during that period is when we then start to bring in, and obviously you've got investment bankers on both sides representing both sides, then you obviously start to bring in legal, but you also bring in your functional leaders. That's what we do at COFAX. So Carl has developed a very sort of regimented approach, so rinse and repeat, where he will bring in the right functional leaders who are global sales leader to make sure that we understand the go-to-market um, of this target acquisition, as well as not just the current state, but, but where we can take it and how we would integrate it effectively into our model. Same thing with marketing, same thing with services, same thing with product. But through this diligence process that we strive to have exclusivity on, there is an initial offer that, that is made um, that gets the, the acquisition target to agree to enter into the exclusivity. Now, it's during the exclusivity period where we do our due diligence. So we set up a data room where we ask certain questions and the target provides certain responses into that data room and we're able to go in there and rummage through it, look for the look for the information that we need in order for on the COFAX side, our functional leaders to make informed decisions around how, what they would do with this new business. And what Carl does is Carl runs sort of the integration planning um, and then post acquisition will actually run the integration uh, team. But through that due diligence, that's where there's a lot of back and forth just to make sure that what's being represented is what we would be acquiring because that initial offer was based on a lot of assumptions. So the due diligence allows us to really dig in, you know, is the technology as strong as it's being represented? So are, are all of the certifications there, have any vulnerability security issues been identified and remedied? So all of that takes place. And then our CFO obviously is working the financial model, making sure that, you know, the annual recurring revenue, the gross revenue retention, any churn tied to that, the net revenue. So how are they upselling and cross-selling to, to drive more consumption over time from their existing install base? Like are all of those numbers in line with what's being represented? And as you dig into that, as you would imagine, some of the stuff gets, um, gets portrayed in a way that maybe isn't exactly accurate or exactly how Kofax as a, you know, two times over publicly traded company um, and now private, but we have a, a very sort of compliance oriented way of approaching this because we know at the end of the day, you will be valued based on are the numbers actually painting the, the most accurate story of your operations. So through that due diligence, Praveen, I think coming out of that, there is a final offer that typically is adjusted downward based on initial sort of portrayal of the business was better than it actually was. And I'm not saying that that is misrepresentation at all. What I'm saying is that some of these smaller businesses simply do not have the business acumen of a, you know, a larger company that's been in the business, you know, longer than they have to be able to accurately portray op operations. And so through that due diligence, that's really uncovered. You come to a final offer price. Um, and that's what you sort of close the deal on. But I've seen this done in 30 days. I've seen, you know, things absolutely fall apart, you know, after, after six months. But there's a lot of brokering that takes place during the due diligence. So it's not a, a clean set set of rules that if you do this, you will definitely get to the finish line. That's great. I think that's a lot of insight packaged in there. I think uh, I was just listening to one of the interviews uh, by David Rubinstein, uh, just talking to Jeff Bezos and, uh, Jeff Bezos talked about the fact that when he bought Washington Post, he actually didn't conduct 
any uh, due diligence, right? He asked for a price. The other person, the seller said 250 million. He was Jeff's friend or something. And then <laughs> Jeff, Jeff gave the check, right? So yeah. the reason I'm giving you that background is you have, as Kofax, made acquisitions of companies that are less than 10 million uh, ARR. You have also made acquisitions of companies that are several hundred millions of dollars as well in the past, right? So has there ever been instances where you didn't have to go through a rigorous due diligence because it was a smart, a smaller asset or it was a very popular asset that you desperately wanted? Or does the playbook look pretty similar irrespective of the size of the assets? How would you, is there any difference uh, at all uh, depending on the size of the asset? Yeah, I think the point at which you get really relaxed uh, is the point at which you know you lose the discipline and and likely the results will end up suffering. Uh, this this goes for anything, whether it's you know making acquisitions in enterprise software or, or team sports, right? A team you know starts the season really really strong, uh, they get an ego about it, they become a little relaxed, maybe they're not hustling as much, um, and then they get overrun, right? An underdog comes in and and, and beats them. And so we want to prevent that from happening. So I think we take a very, very disciplined approach. Uh, and our good partners at Tomo Bravo um, sort of, you know, they expect that. And they, and they should expect that from savvy sort of management team. And if, and if you're not, then sort of like, are you the person to take the business forward? So I completely appreciate that very large companies like Amazon with huge, you know, 1.5 trillion US dollar market caps can do things like that where the acquisition is a rounding error. But when you're talking about, you know, a three, $5 billion company, you know, making, you know, a, a 400 million or even a $40 million acquisition, we apply the same rigor and discipline. Now, what I, what I will tell you, Praveen, can accelerate the process is where on the target side, sometimes the target will be actively sort of pursuing uh, a sell process. And when they do that, what they've typically done with their investment bankers is they will do a third, they will commission a third party independent market study that really does take a look at the market, um, how they're servicing the market and the, and the potential on a go forward. And then they'll also do, if they're not a publicly traded company, a quality of earnings review. So that way, when they do shop themselves out to say a Cofax, they bring that to the table, which does minimize the level of due diligence that we need to take which can speed it up. So I, I think that's where, you know, things that can happen in 30 days is where a lot of that due diligence has already been done on the front end of it, as opposed to, you know, somebody just reaching out to us. And this happens daily. At, at least we, we, we get it at Kofax. We get companies reaching out daily, you know, wanting us to take a look at them. And so some are more mature when they reach out to us. Others are just putting out feelers. And, and you right. can definitely tell that. Yeah, so in other words, you're saying uh, when companies are serious about selling, the more transparent they are, right? The more open they are, uh, you know, the, the entire cycle, the life cycle can be short-circuited and you can make a go-no-go -no -go decision uh, pretty quickly, right? And I think a related question there is, you, you like you said, there are many companies trying to reach out to you, trying to get acquired by Kofax, et cetera. When you look at all of these companies, what are some of the common mistakes uh, do you think these guys are making, which is really limiting them from being acqui either acquired or uh, being acquired at a good valuation, right? So in other words, what recommendation would you have for them in terms of uh, enhancing their own value when they are uh, out there in the market selling themselves? Yeah, I think 
and this is completely understandable, right? Because a lot of these companies are, are, are founder-led CEOs, which means that this this has been their their life's work, and and they're not going they're going to err on the side of overvaluing it as opposed to undervaluing it. And so I think one of the initial mistakes that is made is that they price themselves out of the market. They price themselves out of an acquisition being an acquisition target because their expectations in terms of what what, what they're going to get is too high. And that does put companies like Kofax that is a serial acquirer, it does put us off. Um, it prevents early conversations from taking place that can mature very quickly into you know a period of exclusivity where we really take a hard, fast look and, and who knows what happens. So I would say like that's probably one of the things that I see out there is that, you know, especially the founder-led CEOs, they overvalue their businesses. Um, and if they're doing that, then I don't know exactly why they would be looking to sell so early. If they see that potential, then maybe it's through, you know, alliances or partnerships where they can get the top cover needed from a bigger company. Um, as opposed to selling out. And so I think if you are actively shopping yourself around, you need to be very, very cognizant of, of valuations and and who you're targeting um, in those conversations. And if it's a private equity company that you're looking to sort of take a look at you, know that they are very disciplined about their approach. If it's a deep-pocketed VC hyper-growth company, then you can know they probably value the technology a little bit more as opposed to the financial model that will be built to justify the valuation. And so I think it really depends, but, but, but there's another element of this and there's always a people element. The people element, which is the management team that does approach us, um, I, I think there's a level of savviness that some bring and that level can be high and it can be low. And it's very apparent early on that level of savviness, which means you know, even if we do get through an acquisition, what, how do they want to play moving forward? Do they want to be part of the go forward or do they just want to cash the check? Yeah. And, and so going into it, I think thinking through that will definitely allow you to fast track the early conversations and get to, you know, a green light or a red light. I think what both sides want to avoid are the yellow lights, which is just, you know, lingering sort of conversations that really go nowhere. Absolutely. And how do companies, uh, you know, like those actually find buyers like you, right? Now, obviously, you are a popular company. A lot of people know you, but how do they really access the right people within the organization? Uh, more at a macro level, what's your view on the future of MA in the automation industry? Um, are we at a inflection point where consolidation is actually inevitable? I, I think the automation market is, is, is constantly evolving and it's only accelerating. Um, so you have to have like a like a rolling series of commoditization, consolidation, and convergence perspectives. Uh, and so at what point are you and your acquisition sort of um, life looking at you know commoditization, consolidation, or a convergence of the technologies? I think embedded technologies, Praveen, which I know you guys really specialize on. So identifying what you know the the over the horizon, but also the you know embedded technologies could be so things that maybe are commoditized. I think embedded technologies um, tend to commoditize, and so if you think about like what Kofax, so many of our competitors use our products because they've embedded it in their product um, because it is a commodity. And so some of our older technologies that you know Kofax was born on in 1985 is embedded in so many of our competitors, 
and some of you know the more modern competitors that simply didn't want to develop the technology, so they embedded it. So I think embedded technologies tend to commoditize. Matured technologies tend to consolidate as they sort of fight for the last bits of, of profitability. Um, my, one might think around sort of, especially in our automation space, um, workflow. So the old BPM that has been sort of revitalized um, through digital workflows and less sort of, you know, back office sort of, can we move work? Um, and then finally, I think you have adjacent technologies that really converge in order to remain relevant. And that's where you can sometimes get the one plus one equals three. An example that we're converging right now is a lot of the PDF editors. So we made a a $400 million acquisition a couple of years ago, acquired a few assets, one of them being PowerPDF, which is the, the number two in the market to Adobe. But we're, we're combining that with electronic signature because now so much of data is being passed through PDFs. Yes. And in this distributed work environment now, a lot of this requires a signing ceremony. So somebody to sign, whether it's a mortgage application, whether it's you know an onboarding of an employee and they need to sign, and so we're, we're actually converging what we call our sign doc, which is electronic signature with powered PDF. And so that's where we get to a one plus one equals three, but that's where adjacent technologies can converge uh, to create more value. But savvy players in the space provision do not wed themselves again to the technology. They mindfully balance a strategy that calls for almost like a protect the base that they've already built while also positioning for the future. And I think that's how one really needs to approach the automation space. It's not just the new technologies, but it's what are some of the older technologies that really are the foundation for these newer technologies to go mainstream. Absolutely. I love the framework on uh, commoditization, consolidation and convergence. I think there's a lot of deep insight in, in terms of how the, the, the shape of the industry could evolve uh, around these segments. But, I know we are uh, on time, but one last question, maybe uh, on your advice to your fellow chief strategy officers or chief uh, commercial development officers, corporate development officers um, who are looking to unfold their MA playbook. Uh, what skill sets uh, do they really, really need to be successful as the industry goes through this wave of uh, commoditization, consolidation, and convergence, uh, Chris? Yeah, Praveen, so I love ending on this because it gets to the human element of the business that, that we do. And I am, I am very thankful and lucky that I've had amazing mentors that have taken time out of, you know, their very busy schedules and lives to, to help mentor me along and help me grow. And, and I continue to grow every day. Um, but so the advice, I take this very serious in terms of helping others out because I know I get a lot of help and, and it's only fair that I, that, I, that I pay it for and I take a lot of pride in doing that. I would just say, be very mindful of exercising an intentional approach. And just like anything else, the more you do it, the easier it becomes and the better you get at it. And so reach out to others in the industry. Um, and, I, and I'm certain that they will share sort of the lessons that they've learned. So that way they have, again, put in place a more intentional approach and they stay pretty disciplined to it. There's always gonna be exceptions, but I think as you develop that intentional approach, you'll find that it becomes easier and you begin to sort of, um, you begin to sort of execute better deals. And at the end of the day, that's what you wanna be known for. Somebody that takes a lot of pride in their work and is really, really good at it. And so taking an intentional approach and just reaching out and leveraging the network can help you get there. Awesome. Thank you so much, Chris. I think as always, uh, this was a really delightful conversation with you. It was extremely insightful, very interesting, very, very enlightening. 
And I'm sure our audience uh, took away a lot of newer perspectives and really thought processes that can help them set the right tone when it comes to uh, outlining their M&A strategies, be it from a buyer's perspective or from a, a seller's perspective as well. So really appreciate uh, you sharing uh, very candidly and generously sharing your learnings and insights on this piece, uh, Chris. And I sincerely pervade the opportunity to continue working with you and, and growing together and sharing the, the knowledge that I have with, with others. Thank you so much. And thanks everyone for tuning in to this uh, episode of the Zenov podcast, Hyper Intelligent Automation Series, your one-stop shop to learn about the latest in the automation space. Uh, we will be back soon with another episode and a new leader. Till then, take care and stay safe. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hyper Intelligent Automation Series. Stay tuned for more such interesting episodes. You can listen to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. To get more insights on how you can make your automation strategy count, connect with us at info@zenov.com or visit our website www.zenov.com. Follow us on LinkedIn at Zenov for regular updates on our content. Thank you again for listening to the Zenov podcast.